Hey, real quick, this is Ian. I'm just popping in to let you know that we are re-releasing this episode with Dr. John Drake to talk about the population biology of infectious diseases. We thought at this part of the pandemic, a refresher on what models were and what our predictive people are doing behind the scenes would be an important listen. Don't worry, we will be back at you with some new content next week, and I really did want to share this episode again because it's worth the listen if you are trying to understand how different disciplines are working together to help predict how diseases behave in an epidemic and and how they are making predictions about caseloads in response to different scenarios. Especially because as we look towards the fall, a lot of organizations and a lot of society is deciding what opening up will look like. And the predictions that modelers make will really inform that for us. All right, here is my episode with Dr. John Drake. Again, uh, this was pre-recorded. Some of the data that is shared throughout it is a little bit dated because we did release this originally in May. All right, here's the episode. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Olga Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in the field of public health and outside of it. Okay, what are we talking about today? Well, today is the last day of our official series on the novel coronavirus COVID-19. We started with the background of the disease with Dr. Tara C. Smith. We talked about exposure science on a person-by-person level, both at work and in everyday life with Dr. Matt Nunneman. And then finally, we talked about how public health organizations get ready and respond to outbreaks with Robert Nysgoda. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, it's definitely a good idea to do so. Anyway, we wanted to find out how people predict how bad a disease would be. In order to do that, we wanted to talk to someone with perspective on how diseases spread in populations and how to model those interactions. And in order to do that, I called up Dr. John Drake from the University of Georgia School Odom School of Ecology. Dr. Drake is a distinguished research professor and associate dean for academic affairs and the director for the Center for the Ecology of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Drake looks at disease spread from an ecological and populational perspective through the use of models, including diseases ranging from white nose syndrome in bats to schistosomiasis, and even some broader studies that look at how diseases transition from their background rates to higher rates of transmission in an epidemic. Dr. Drake and I talked on the phone about modeling and how to more quickly and effectively spread scientific information. All right, here's my interview with Dr. Drake. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod today. Can you state your name and what you do? I'm John Drake, uh, and I'm a professor in the Odom School of Ecology at the University of Georgia. Great. And um, so your work has involved a lot of modeling. Why is modeling important in the world of infectious diseases? And can you give a couple examples how models might be applied? Modeling is really useful for trying to understand the bits and pieces that we can't directly measure about nature. Very often what we do is we take a model, which is maybe a computer simulation, maybe a a mathematical equation, uh, and it represents our idea about what's going on. Um, If there's parts of of what's going on that we don't really understand, uh, what we might think of as like free parameters, we can sometimes fit the model to data in order to estimate and uh, um, get a better idea of the value of those quantities. 
And then we can also check the fit of the model to any data that we have, which is kind of a validation of whether or not our picture of what's going on in the world is accurate. I like to say that um, models are for making our ideas about nature clear. Uh, and it could be that they are models of the, the process itself, the system that we're interested in. Um, this particular pathogen in that particular population, uh, the way in which transmission is happening. Um, or it could be that the model is uh, um, uh, makes our ideas clear about what the data have to say to us. That would be a statistical model, which speaks to us probabilistically about the likelihood of having generated um, observations of the kind that we actually have, given all of the different possible ways that the world could be. What are some challenges associated with modeling around an emerging infectious disease? Like what makes it hard to make it to make everything clear with a model? Well, probably the biggest challenge has to do with um, just the chaos and confusion, the lack of information early on in the course of an epidemic. Uh, when we don't have very much information about, um, say, the details of the, uh, the course of disease or the ways in which transmission happens or um, the propensity for, uh, for an infected case to give rise to secondary cases, those are all things that we have to figure out from typically uh, very limited data. Yeah, and, and there, there really isn't a way around limited data, right? Because the data is what creates a model. Well, I wouldn't say that the data creates the model. Um, I think scientists create the model oh, based right. on their ideas about what's going on. Um, uh, but, uh, but there is kind of a, a no free lunch rule that applies here. You can't get something for nothing. So a model can't tell you what is going on if you don't have any external information about the world. Uh, those would have to be measurements in the case of an emerging infectious disease, something like the number of cases, the outcomes of those cases, um, uh, maybe observations based on contact tracing to let you know who might have acquired the infection um, from whom. That's not to say that models can't be actually extremely useful in the case where we lack data um, because they are exquisite tools for organizing the information that we do have and uh, a kind of sanity check on what our ideas are. Uh, models can in fact be very useful for things like scenario analysis. So it's very hard for me to reason from you know, a dozen different ideas about what's probably going on and put them all together in my head and say, oh, so therefore we expect cases to triple within three weeks. What I can do is I can take all of that information, uh, put it into a dynamical model, um, and that gives me uh, a very clear way of putting those ideas together and understanding what their interactions and consequences are. So what perspective... Um do you bring as a population biologist and how does it differ from biostatistics or epidemiology? Yeah, so um, I think that's a really good question. What's the difference between uh, ecological modeling or population modeling and biostatistics? So uh, I was trained as an ecologist. One of the things that population ecologists understand about the world is the role of nonlinear interactions and feedbacks. So for 60 years, 70 years, population ecologists have been developing dynamical models that incorporate those um, features of interacting populations. Uh, those features are also present, especially in emerging infectious diseases, 
where as uh, a contagious process moves through a population, uh, individuals are uh, removed from being in what we call the susceptible pool, uh, and that actually feeds back on the process of transmission itself. Um, so that's kind of like a population ecology principle. Uh, traditionally, biostatistics uh, makes the assumption of constancy. Uh, and so the idea is that although there's variation, the processes that are acting are constant at different points in time that you might measure. Now, in fact, traditional biostatistics and, um, and population ecology have really come close together in recent decades where statistical methods uh, that were developed in traditional applied statistical disciplines are now being used to uh, fit and estimate and therefore draw inference from population dynamical models. By the same token, uh, I think very often now our biostatistical models um, are able to incorporate the kind of nonlinear interactions and feedbacks that population ecologists know to be really common in the world. So. Um, Nowadays, there's actually not very much difference uh, in methodology between the population ecologist who's working on emerging infectious diseases or the evolution of pathogens uh, and, um, and public health practitioners that identify themselves as, as modelers. Yeah, that's interesting to hear that, you know, the convergence of the convergence of kind of the tools, especially given that you know, we've, we've learned more and more that actually a lot of these, a lot of the pathogens out in the ecology world are coming in, spilling over and infecting humans as well. So it's interesting, one, just to see the two disciplines kind of converge on tools that they both know to work really well, but also to think about that from the, from the disease analogy or from the disease yeah, side. So that's well. a, yeah. So that's actually a really important point. Population ecologists work on a wide range of pathogens. Uh, not just emerging infectious diseases, but of those that are emerging, roughly 80% are actually zoonotic, which means that they're pathogens that come from animals. Understanding the conditions under which pathogens emerge in a new population is therefore inherently an ecological problem. We need to understand things about the um, habitat of the organisms that, that might carry infectious diseases, the conditions under which people and those organisms come into contact, the evolutionary history of those uh, host organisms together with their parasites and pathogens. Uh, ecology really brings a set of holistic tools to thinking about any system as uh, a complex system, as a system with multiple interacting parts that kind of are modularized and do their own thing, but come together to give rise to uh, sort of some kind of larger phenomenon. There's no doubt that emerging infectious diseases are complex systems of this kind. Well, thank you so much for your perspective on that. I'm going to change directions just a little bit. Um, recently, your working group launched a platform to distribute information on COVID-19. Can you tell us what it is and, and your goals for it? Right. So we have this website. Uh, it's 2019-coronavirus-tracker.com. And our goal for the website is really communication. So when we first became aware that the COVID-19 uh, epidemic was going to become significant, we immediately stood up a working group to try and make sense of the information that we had and also to reach out to our counterparts, academics elsewhere um, in the world and, uh, and you know, government agencies and officials that might be interested in, uh, in the information that we could glean 
uh, by combining our modeling efforts with the data um, that uh, you know at that time was just starting to accumulate. Uh, the reason that we put the website up is because we wanted to make our information as widely accessible as possible. Um, and we anticipated that our results would change over time. The traditional way of disseminating scientific information is to write a, um, a technical paper, submit it to a scientific or a medical journal. It then goes through a rigorous process of peer review, uh, whereby external experts are called upon to uh, validate uh, and um, certify that the work is done uh, to a professional standard. But that process takes a tremendous amount of time. And, um, and we thought that, uh, um, that in this case, we didn't have that, that time. It also takes a tremendous amount of effort to be able to take those results and, uh, and write them up in the, in the expected academic format. We plan to do that, but we'll do that at a later date. At the current time, our goal was just to make the information that we had accumulated widely available. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to underscore, this means that it's not peer-reviewed. It hasn't gone through that traditional certification process. And at the top of every page of our website, we actually have a disclaimer to that effect because we want the, uh, um, the public or other readers to understand um, that these are our opinions we think that the work is done to a professional standard. It's the same kind of work that we would do for a peer-reviewed publication, but it hasn't actually been through that vetting process yet. Now, the format of the website itself, we've got some information um, which maybe puts the COVID-19 epidemic in a bit of a historical context. By comparison with other epidemics people might be familiar with, uh, the West Africa Ebola epidemic, uh, the emergence of MERS coronavirus, which is related to COVID-19, uh, but also more historically um, past influenza epidemics. Um, influenza, of course, is a respiratory pathogen like uh, COVID-19. So we have some of that information that helps to put it in context, also to make people generally aware of what our group is doing. But the majority of the website is actually organized around working papers that we're developing. Uh, we've published web summaries of the results that we've produced uh, so that anybody can go in and, and take a look at what um, we believe the current state of the outbreak is, what we believe we've been able to infer from the data uh, that's available to us. And we invite feedback on that, uh, feedback from public health officials and others for whom this information is, is useful, but maybe not quite as useful as it could be if we tweaked it in one direction or another. Um, but also other scientists and, and thoughtful people uh, who might look at what we've done and, and, um, and have a critique. Uh, and so really part of the purpose of the website is to invite a dialogue. Right on. Well, we will be sure to link that in the show notes um, and with our social media posts. So listeners, um, you should be able to find that. We'll also talk, uh, talk about it and give you the link one more time in the end of the show. Um, yeah. So, I'm, I'm just going to go, do you have any last thoughts on, on modeling, on emerging, emerging outbreaks before we switch over to our last question today? Um, I, the main thing that I would want to reinforce is that um, public health emergencies like the um, COVID-19 epidemic or just the general understanding of public health is really not a disciplinary endeavor. Mm -hmm. I'm a modeler. I was trained as an ecologist and I think these tools are um, are just absolutely fine-tuned to the kind of work we need to do. 
But we also need information that comes from sometimes journalists, sometimes epidemiologists, sometimes government agencies that are compiling information. Uh, we need statisticians. We need uh, clinical professionals. Part of these public health emergencies is that you know, they are themselves inherently multidisciplinary. Um, academics, health practitioners, government officials, it's really important that we're able to work together in a collaborative nature on these problems. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And and yeah, you know, we talk about multiple disciplinarity in public health a lot, but you're right, during an outbreak we just see it where everybody's got to put uh pull their weight. And and lastly, that um our last question for the day is what is one thing that you thought you knew but later realized that you were wrong about? You know, the really interesting thing about the COVID-19 epidemic is that there's a lot that I'm pretty sure we don't know confidently at this particular point in time. Some things actually may become more clear by the time that this show airs in a week. Yeah. Um, it's a rapidly moving situation. We're trying to stay on top of it. It's interesting to me the effectiveness that some interventions have had. Uh, I think that our contact tracing in some parts of the world has been absolutely, um, you know, magnificent, very impressive. And that tells me that we have, the, that there is the possibility of containing COVID-19 in local populations when there is a concerted effort. But one of the things that worries me is the ongoing new cases that can't be traced back uh, to an original source that seem to pop up from place to place. And one of the things that that tells us is that there's ongoing transmission, unidentified transmission in the community. And whether this is widespread or actually quite localized at the moment, I think is our biggest open question. Thank you so much, Dr. Drake, for coming on the pod today. Thanks so much for having me. So, okay, what did you get out of this interview? Um, I got a lot of stuff. First, uh, first of all, it would be the fact that ecological modeling is a thing. This is the first time I actually ever heard of that. Not knowing that there's even a whole school targeted at ecological mod <laughs> modeling. I always just felt like the roles that ecological modeling plays is what it's under public health. Like with epidemiology and community behavioral health, I always felt like this was something that had to be investigated. But now I guess it makes more sense that the people who are specialized are looking at these different interactions of the po population or how our environment affects our livelihood. And then I guess public health, we go off of that too and then use that as part of our foundation into um, developing different experiments or creating hypotheses, ask our questions, and, you know. Going off of what you're saying, you know, and, and one thing, one point that Dr. Drake made in the interview was that you can't do it alone in public mm -hmm. health. And so ecological modeling is not something we traditionally think of as being within the, the sphere of public health. It, ha it has a lot of value because it helps us think about diseases in populations not just our own but also in the animal populations and you know an outbreak like coronavirus like COVID-19 happens because you have these two populations 
and the transmission occurs between the two. And if you know how frequent the disease is in the animals and how often humans contact those animals, then you can really start making some interesting inferences. Okay, so question. Did he say that most infectious diseases are from a zoonotic origin? Yeah, so most emerging infectious diseases are. Okay. Um, and if you dive back into the history of most diseases, the, at some point they spilled over um, because, you know, even things like measles that are really just in humans mm-hmm. um, have an, or have similar diseases like canine distemper in dogs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So in terms of emerging infectious diseases, you do really zoonotic diseases are really where we need to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. We've been journeying together for now four weeks, and you and I have been having these conversations. What have you learned about the novel coronavirus outbreak during our conversations? Um, I think what I have learned now, or more lingering questions, is more like, because um, new cases just came out of nowhere that they couldn't track to any of previous cases, which I think it's really scary because like right now like in nigeria we found one case and people were freaking out and me i was actually happy that they could actually identify a case because i think probably what like what happened in italy was the inability to identify a case because of how asymptomatic it is and then before you find out oh people have corona you have this whole epidemic like oh wow we have a handful of people with corona yeah, and that really gets us into a discussion of testing because testing is the most important thing we can be doing, um, or at least one of them, just to know where the outbreak is so that we as public health can start to do our jobs and we can you know, help people get into self-isolation. We can help inform people who should be looking for symptoms because they've been in contact with someone. And, and you know, China is able to process 1.6 million tests a day. Mm. And and so that insanely high testing capacity uh, is allowing them to really track the disease. Mm. And so one of the things about the fact that we have this community spread in the U.S. right now, we need to be testing a lot of people in order to, um, in order to find all the cases of the virus in order to really be able to start doing our local epidemiology and getting people to self-quarantine because if someone doesn't know that they have COVID-19, they think they just have influenza. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they should still be staying home if they have influenza, but all their contacts need to be told as well to, to look for it, especially if they have a really mild case. Then one that a lot of people might work through, they need to know that they have COVID-19 so that they can self-isolate. Any other thoughts, okay, about about our series so far? Mm-mm. I have uh, a couple of my own before we go on. Um, so I think one thing that I think has really been interesting is we learned we learn every single time we have a disease outbreak that we have not beaten stigma around disease, right? HIV, mm. uh, Ebola, now COVID-19. We have people being harassed and targeted just because of people perceiving that a disease has to do with some social characteristic. And I think that that's something that we need to do better as a society. Uh, So that's my first thought on that. Um, I think just re-highlighting kind of our conversations about information. So get your information from good sources. Uh, Our first conversation with Dr. Teresi Smith, she, she made a really good point about who's susceptible to fake news. 
I mean, I, I, I think we have to realize that we all are, um, that we all have these biases and, you know, we, we, we trust people that we, you know, we follow on social media or our friends or things like that. And we don't always question when they, you know, put out an article or something like that. And we share it because we trust them. But they might not have the information, right? Did they check their sources? Did they double check things? Do they know who's, who's sharing this and why do they trust them? So I think we have to be skeptical about everything and, and not assume it's just one group or another that is susceptible to fake news or one political party or another or anything like that. I think we all have to really, you know, take a second before we share something on social media or spread it to our family or friends and think, you know, check if it's accurate and just get in the habit of doing that because there is so much bad information out there. And again, even if it's not necessarily purposeful, you could still be spreading something that is that is wrong and that could could drive fear. Yeah. So the idea that we're all susceptible to fake news is really important and you know everyone before you share anything about the outbreak click it read it past the headline and then google it and just make sure it's real um so yeah lastly back to that idea of local epidemiology our best defense is giving people the ability to not have to work, not have to have their normal social interactions, really self-isolating people, which means if you're in self-isolation or quarantine, you really can't leave. So make sure that you have um, or have brought to you enough supplies to get through that week or so um, in order to you know, protect the people around you. One thing is that we have millions of people in our country like if we take this to an economic level, we have millions who can't afford to take a day off. Mm -hmm. You know, they might lose their job. They might lose the source of income that they desperately need to make it through the month. And that that's not, that's one, a problem already. But think about the percentage of people who work in service jobs who are on that, who are on that margin. Something needs to be done to protect the people in those jobs, but also protect the public because if they are forced to go to work while sick, and they are making your pizza or they are making you know food for you or they're at the teller at your bank and they have no choice but to come into work even though they're horribly sick because they can't make rent otherwise like we need to think of something better um you know paid sick leave or whatever else it is uh but if we really want to get serious about stopping this outbreak we need to think about people who otherwise have to go to work preach any last thoughts okay no, I think you did a really great job on that. Well, thank you. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for this whole series. You can let us know what you thought about it and this episode at cph-g-r-a-d-a-m-b-a-s-s-a-d-o-r at uiowa.edu. I forgot to spell for a minute there. <laughs> uh, don't worry. We are not done with our coverage of COVID-19. We do know that it's going to be a popular topic for a while. Uh, but our dedicated full episodes that are just about it are probably going to be coming to a little bit of a break. Uh, but we will try to keep you all updated with some news and and brief conversations with people as we as we keep going forward. That's it for this week. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thank you to our guest, Dr. John Drake. You can see more of his group's work on coronavirus in our show notes. 
This episode of From the Front Row was hosted and written by Oge Chibo and Ian Bukta. Emma Metter also helped and host and write the COVID-19 series. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. This podcast is also brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay safe and see you next week. Yeah, she does it better than me. (laughs) 